This is Palm Sunday. This is a passage that looks forward to the coming of the Lord, the day when he would come to his temple, when he does arrive in Jerusalem. But it's a passage that, uh, that touches on the, the context in which God's people were at that time, as well and similar to the context that we're in this time, which is an already and a not yet. You know, they already had this covenant that God had made with them, but the fullness of that covenant hasn't been realized. And they, uh, they've been in exile, they've come back from exile, and they're, you know, they're already back from exile, but they don't see their former glory restored. They're still, you know, they're still not their own nation. They're still under the thumb of the Persian Empire. They're still longing for deliverance and a Messiah. They're looking for that day. And in the in-between, it's difficult. There are a lot of temptations for us, and we're in that same in-between, the already where Christ has come, and he has, he has borne our sin on the cross, and He is raised, and He is seated at the right hand, and yet we live in this period where still the wicked prosper, and those who know and love the Lord share in the sufferings of this world. So we're not exempt, and we live in this time when it, is, it, it can be difficult. There's a tension. Read with me. We're in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. This is the last verse of chapter 2 and the first 5 of chapter 3. God says, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you will say, How have we wearied him? By saying that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former days. And then I will draw near to you for judgment. And I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and who do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we have gathered this morning to you to worship you, to know you, to love you, to give our hearts to you afresh this morning, even as we have gathered, to be gathered out of our busyness, out of our distractedness, out of our scatteredness, and back into the wholeness of your presence where you might heal us and fill us and renew us and restore us. And even as we come to your word, we long for you to speak to us in power, Father, you would shape our hearts and our minds according to your word, that we might experience the truth of it and live in the power of it. For we ask and pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Where is the God of justice? 
That's what Israel wants to know. There are times that we have the same question. Where is the God of justice? We've seen here that a lot of people, or a lot of us, have these similar thoughts. Why do some people, we look at the injustices, we look at the the unfairness around us, even as Israel is doing, there, there are those people that have more than others. Why do others have more than me? Why do others seem to prosper more than me? Why do I try so hard and yet it doesn't seem like the Lord blesses my efforts? There are some who seem to suffer a lot and others that seem to suffer hardly at all. Why do I suffer when they don't suffer? Why do I have this much suffering when they don't have very much suffering? What's wrong with me? Where is the God of justice or is there something going on? Why are some healthier than me? Why are they less sick or have less problems or they have a nicer house or a nicer car, nicer clothes, or they take better vacations? They seem to have fewer troubles than me. Why do I have so many troubles? And they seem to just plug along. At least from the outside, it all looks much better than my lot. Sometimes we may think it's not fair, especially if we look at the world and we see that non-Christians also uh, are the ones who sometimes seem to have more than us, or sometimes seem to have less trouble than us. They seem to suffer less than we suffer. And we who love the Lord, you know, here are the people who don't love the Lord living lavishly, and we who love the Lord at times, at least, suffer. Why do I not get to enjoy those things? Why do I have to struggle? I've given my life to God, and they're... They don't care, and yet they seem better off than me. It doesn't seem fair. If God loves me, right, if God loves me, why don't I have nicer things, or why doesn't it go better for me? If God loves me, then why don't I have better health, or why isn't it just seem like it ought to be more fair? Where is the God of justice? This is the fourth of six discourses. We said that that Malachi is divided up into six discourses where God makes an assertion and then Israel questions that assertion and then God answers it and he speaks truth into Israel's life. And so the fourth of the sixth here, the dispute, you know, it's a disputation we say or a discourse. The Lord makes an assertion and that's verse 17 at the beginning. You have wearied the Lord with your words. You've wearied him. He's tired. Of the accusations against him, the things that you are saying about the Lord. He says, I'm tired of them. I'm tired of hearing it. Now, I want to say up front that the Lord is not tired of hearing our prayers. He is never tired of hearing our prayers. He is never tired. He is not tired of our confession, of of being honest with him about our sin and coming again and again or as often as we need to, to come before him. He is not tired of our honesty. He's not, he, he's, he doesn't have a problem with our legitimate complaining or pouring out our hearts or the struggles that we have in life and that we can be honest with him. He loves the open and honest heart of his people wrestling with him over the things of life. Because it is hard and we need him desperately and we don't understand and the wise don't always get answered. 
God does not grow tired or weary. Isaiah 40, verse 28 says this, The Lord is the everlasting God. He is the creator of the ends of the earth, and not just the ends of the earth, but the ends of the solar system. He's the creator of the ends of the galaxy. He's the creator of the the millions of galaxies. He has made all things. The Lord, who can do all of this, he doesn't grow faint, and he is not weary. Right? He has infinite energy. He has infinite patience for his people. I want us to hear that up front. Even as God says he's weary of what these people are saying. Because some of the Israelites had crossed a line. They've crossed between honest struggle and wrestling with God about their pain and their confusion. Wrestling with a God they love and worship and and know and walk with, even in their own confusion or pain. They've crossed a line and they've turned to unbelief. They're accusing God of injustice. Saying He is not just. Or if He is just in some sense, they doubt His sovereignty. That he's just not able. He's just not here. He's just not present. Where is the God of justice? If he is such. They doubt his goodness. They doubt his power. They doubt his justice. That's a different story than wrestling with a good and just and sovereign God over things we don't understand. They've turned on him. And God says, I'm weary of your words. But they say, in verse 1, but they say, you say, Israel says, and they they question him, but how have we wearied you? Why are you tired with us? What have we done? What did we say that we're wearing you out? And so verse 17, God goes on to answer them. God answers by saying, This is the kind of thing that is coming out of your hearts, out of your mouths, right? He says, everyone you're saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he, the Lord, delights in those evil people. Or by asking, where is he? Where is this God of justice? He says they're saying that God allows the wicked to get away with evil. He allows the wicked to prosper. He must approve of these wicked people. If he hasn't judged them, if he hasn't stopped them, if they continue to prosper, he must approve of them. Right? Doesn't his blessings flow on those he approve? Right? Aren't we to be... Aren't aren't those who are righteous the ones who should prosper and the wicked, you know, those who do bad don't prosper? Those whom God approves are those whom he blesses and they're looking around. God must disapprove of good people because a lot of them suffer. And he must approve of these wicked people because they seem to glide along without a hitch. Right? They're looking around. They begin thinking evil people are better off than we are. And it's not fair. God must approve of evil people. And not so much of us. Considering the state of things. And we could do this right now. We just prayed for the covenant school. Or you can open any newspaper and watch any newscast. We could do it now. Considering the state of things. 
What is it? God must not be just. Where is the God of justice? He is conspicuously absent. Why does evil prosper? Why do good people suffer? If God loves us, if he is just, where is he? And so they interpret the lack of God's action as his approval. And so they accuse the Almighty of injustice and of loving evil. This is not faithful wrestling with the God you know to be good and just and sovereign. They have moved into unbelief. They're thinking either God approves of evil or he is just not involved in the affairs of men. But whatever it is, he's not here. Where is he? And we are tempted when we experience suffering and loss. These are the thoughts that can tempt us. If God loves me, why did this happen to me? I get it. We see the world going on. Evil is unchecked. Things seem to be getting worse, at least in America. Things have been worse a lot of other places. But it seems to be getting worse for us, and so that it feels that way for us. Where, where is the God of justice? But we're not the first, obvious, to ask these questions. And this is obviously written some thousands of years ago. And in a thousand years prior to that, the psalmist wrestled with it. And so this is something that has been put into words and something that God's people have has always had to deal with. This idea that justice waits. And that in this world that yes, we all, the evil and the just, those who belong to God and those who don't, walk this world with the same portions of common grace and suffering until the day he comes. That God's people suffer along with the world. In this fallen and brokenness, injustice, healing and rightness and things being made new and whole and justice and evil being punished is a day that waits. The psalmist wrestled with it. Psalm 73, if when you finish this morning with hearing me that you can go and read if, if you wrestle with it. In Psalm 73, that's the whole point of the entire psalm. The, the, the whole psalm is given to this struggle This wrestling with God, the psalmist says this, As for me, my feet had almost stumbled in my steps. I had nearly slipped. I was tempted. Why are you tempted? Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The wicked prosper. If I was more wicked, I could probably get more money. It happens all around us every day. All I have to do is be unscrupulous, to lie, cheat, steal. I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble. He's not very politically correct. But he is saying they prosper and they have so much, right? They're not in trouble as others are. I look around and it seems like it. Some are and some aren't, just like some believers are and some aren't. Like there's this proportion. But you see some of the wicked prospering, and so they They're always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Have I wasted my time worshiping God? Have I wasted my time giving my life to God and and trying to live a righteous life, 
trying to please him and to honor him? Am I wasting my time if the wicked prosper more than I do? There's a temptation to doubt that God is either real or that he's good or that he's just. Where is the God of justice? It's that sense, but for us who believe, it's a sense of longing for heaven, longing for the day. For Israel, justice had been delayed. The covenant is not fulfilled. They are, they are a, a minor state in the larger Persian empire under their rule. And they are limited and they are weak and they are broken. They have just rebuilt the temple, but it's a mere shadow of its former glory. They're working on rebuilding the walls and Israel still is a subject state. And they long for the day for Messiah. They believe Messiah will come and set all that right. That they will restore Israel to his former glory. This is where they imagine Messiah. He will set us free from this kind of oppression under the Persians. We will rebuild. We will be a prosperous, strong state and prosperous people. Their expectation that God would restore the fortunes of Israel. And here they are coming out of exile, but it is not what they expected. This expectation has been placed on Jesus even when he came that first time, even when he had come and the expectation of what would Jesus accomplish for his people. If you remember in Acts chapter 1, after his resurrection, but before Pentecost, and he's meeting with his disciples, and they ask him the question in Acts chapter 1 verse 6, they ask him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Right there, is it now that you're going to bless us? Is it now that we're going to be strong again? Is it now we will be our own country with our own army, our walls built up and prospering like the pagans around us? Are you going to do that now? It, it, we've been waiting a long time. Didn't do it in Malachi's time. Is now the time? Jesus answers him. And he says, it's not for you to know the time. The time is fixed by the Father. And it's not for you to know it. In fact, he said at one point, not even the Son of Man knows the day or the hour. But it's not for us to know the time. But he is coming. Not yet. That day is not yet. There will be a day when the kingdom of God and his righteousness will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. That day is coming, he says, but it's not yet. And what does Jesus say? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses. He says, in the meantime, right, that day is set. It's not for you to know the time. But in the meantime, you'll be filled with power when the Holy Spirit comes and you'll be my witnesses. You will live in this world as a witness to the coming King. As a witness to the Lord. And as we're going to see for them in His first coming, it It is not what they expected. As they look ahead and cry out for his coming, it's not going to be what they expected. Jesus disavows them, disabuses them of those notions in his whole life, death and resurrection. It's not what you thought, not when you thought. But even here in his first coming, we will see that it's not what they expected because he says Israel will be sifted, they will be refined, and they will be judged. Many of those crying out for his coming will be surprised on the day when he comes. 
And so the God of justice comes, that's verses 1 to 5, right, where he says, you have wearied the Lord, and he answers them, you know, with all these things that they're crying out. How does he answer, where is the God of justice? And he says, behold, I'm sending my messenger, he's going to prepare the way, and the Lord whom you seek is coming, right? The Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. That day is fixed, So in verses 1 to 5 here, he mentions three, well actually in the first verse there, he mentions three characters. He says that there is this messenger who will prepare the way, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and then third, this messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. So you got the messenger preparing the way, the Lord himself who comes, and the messenger of the covenant in whom they delight, who is also coming. And so he says, I'll send my messenger. Right? And the word there is the name of the book, Malachi. We said at the beginning, it's a little confusing, that the, 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 basically the name of the book of Malachi is the name for angel or messenger. And so there was some debate, is that the guy's name? Is he a guy who bears the name Malachi? Or is it his office? Is it just saying the messenger? This is the message of the messenger. Uh, in the book of Malachi, and most scholars say it's his name, but the name, but messenger comes up twice here in this verse, used in the, in the more regular sense of I'm going to send my messenger, my angel, the one who will go before me, and he's going to prepare the way before me. Now that would be to you and to me, but also to the hearers of Malachi, very familiar, because we just read it and we just sang it. In Isaiah chapter 40, where Isaiah says in that long passage, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, bring the mountains down and the valleys up and make even and straight a path and the glory of the Lord is going to appear. This this monumental passage when when Isaiah turns in chapter 40 to a more messianic forward looking and he says the Lord is coming and prepare the way for him. And so he says it here, this is, he, he reiterates that there, there's this, this echo that there's a messenger who's going to come and he's going to prepare a way before me. You and I both know as we go further in this book and in the New Testament, it's so clear, the New Testament makes it clear, Jesus makes it clear, that he's talking about the ministry of John the Baptist, right? the forerunner of Messiah, when the messenger who's going to come and prepare the way. The New Testament quotes Isaiah 40, and even at this passage, saying this, this is the ministry of John the Baptist. So he's a forerunner of Christ. So he will prepare the way, and the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. He will visit Israel in the heart of its worship. He's coming, the Lord himself, and the messenger of the covenant. Because the Lord is going to come in the person of His Son. The Son of God is God Himself incarnate. And the Lord does come, and He comes in the person of His Son. And so in answer, He says, suddenly the Lord whom you seek will come. Suddenly, maybe in the sense that it's been over 400 and some years. And then there He is. The messenger is there. We don't even know how long the ministry of John the Baptist was. It could have been a few months or a few years. It's really hard to tell. But there's this window of time and then the Lord comes. Suddenly the Lord will come in answer to their faithlessness. And their 
faithless question, where is the God of justice? Is the promise of his coming. That he is coming. In Isaiah 40, just as it does here, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh together will see it. And then there is this message of, messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. And messenger there, again, is, is a word that can be translated angel. The angel of the covenant, or as the Old Testament, often there was an angel of the Lord. And, and many of the commentators see this idea of the angel of the covenant is the same one who is the, often was a pre-incarnate Christ, an angel of the Lord who showed up at various places as, as the head of the Lord's armies in the Old Testament and at places where the Lord manifested himself, that the angel of the Lord, who is the angel of his covenant, in whom they delight, because they're looking forward to the Messiah, the coming of the king, in many ways they're crying for it. The messenger of the covenant will be the one who fulfills the promises of the covenant. And what becomes clear is this is none other than Jesus. Right? He is the Son of God, God Himself, the messenger who comes. He is the one, if, if we say the, the one who prepares the way for the Lord who comes is John the Baptist. It is clear here and the New Testament that Jesus is the messenger of the covenant. And He will come and fulfill the Old Testament covenant even as He sheds His blood to establish the New Testament covenant, the new covenant. He is the messenger of the covenant who will both conclude the old and initiate the new. And what the Israelites fail to realize, though, is there, that the judgment of God begins with the house of God, begins with the people of the God. He, they want Him to come and judge the out, outside, the wicked, the nations, right? It's like, here's Israel. We want you to come and bless us and restore the fortunes of Israel and restore the kingdom to us and to judge everybody else. But what they don't understand and what sometimes we don't fully understand is that judgment begins with the people of God. Many at His coming will find it to be catastrophic. This is verse 2. He says, Behold, the, the I'm coming. The messenger is coming. The forerunner is coming. The Lord and his, and his covenant messenger is coming. But verse 2, Who can endure the day of His coming? Who can stand when He appears? It's rhetorical. But the obvious answer He expects is, No one. Not even Israel. No one can endure the day of his coming, for he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, and he will sit as a refiner on his people. And in verse 5, he says, I will draw near to you, Israel, for judgment. There will be a purifying, a refining, and a judgment on God's people when he comes. Who can stand on that day? There's no one, Paul quotes the Old Testament, there's no one who is righteous. No, not one. Not in Israel, not outside of Israel. There's no one who's righteous who can stand on that day apart from His grace. And so it was grace and mercy that justice and judgment were delayed. And there is a very real sense even now, there is a mercy that His justice and His judgment is delayed. 
as he gathers a people for himself in Christ. 1 Peter 4.17 says, It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. So we don't stand as those apart and better than the world. We stand as those in much in need of grace and mercy and a Savior as anyone. And so in verses 3 to 5, he does spell out then the role of the mediator of the covenant. He will carry out both the blessings and the curses of the covenant. And that he will purify and he will judge. And he will bring the Old Testament covenant, in a sense, to its conclusion. Into its fullness. By fulfilling it in himself. And so in verses 3 to 4, he says he will purify a people. He will sit like a refiner. Right, that image of the crucible in which the fire heats everything up to its melting point and everything is, is undone, so to speak. And in its undoing, he says, the, 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 the chaff, the, <clears throat> the slag rises to the surface and, and it's, it's scraped off. There's a, a scraping, a purging through fire, through testing, through judgment. Through judgment, he says he comes to judge all of Israel. Some will be purified like gold, and some will reign under his judgment. Andrew Hill says of this passage, the divine messengers carry out a thorough purification of God's people. The transformation of God's people into a holy community a, by a spirit of burning, of washing, and of cleansing and the desired outcome of this difficult and painful process of refining is a genuine worship offered to Yahweh by his faithful people who are now spiritually renewed. And that's what he says will happen at the end there. They'll be like gold and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. They will, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord. Their hearts will be made right and their worship will be true. And rich. He will purify a people for himself. He will enable us to worship. The covenant keeper is coming to his temple. And he will purify a people by bearing the curse of the penalty. And so there is a curse. The, the curse of the covenant. Because all Israel has failed to keep it. There's a curse. There were blessings and curses. If you fail to keep covenant, there's a curse. All Israel has failed. And the curse of the covenant comes when God comes to judge. But what he is saying is there are those by his grace who by that fire of judgment will be purified. Will become a cleaner, righter people. And he does this. By bearing the curse of the penalty in himself. So the messenger of the covenant comes. And the curse upon God's people. He bears in his own body. On the cross. He comes as the faithful high priest. That was not in chapter 2. As that faithful high priest. And he offers that unblemished sacrifice. That wasn't being offered. Which is himself. And in himself then he lives that righteous life. That fulfills all the righteousness of the old covenant and he takes that perfect life that fulfills all righteousness and he offers it as a as the perfect priest and the unblemished sacrifice to pay the full curse and wrath of God against the old covenant and so there are only two places to be 
in Christ and in what he has done for us or out of Christ. He will pay the price to redeem for his people, uh, for himself. It is the amazing grace. There's a grace in here that is sweet to the sound of those who want that, who want to be right with him in this way. How sweet the sound because it saves a wretch like me. Calvin says, God promises that such would be the purifying which Christ would effect, that it would consume the whole people of Israel and yet purify the elect for himself that they may be saved. A believing remnant that will be in Christ, in the messenger of the covenant, in that sin-atoning sacrifice of his. But he reminds us the day of his coming will also be of judgment. In verse 5 he said, he will draw near. He will be a swift witness. He himself stands as witness. The Lord who knows all, who is wise and good, is the swift witness against those who break covenant. Right? And he gives the list there against sorcerers and adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress their hired worker and his wages, the widow, the fatherless, All of those who are breaking covenant by being faithless. If you remember the previous passages of the faithlessness. The same people who are committing these crimes are the ones who are saying, where is the God of justice? And when is he coming? There is a certain lack of self-awareness in them, recognizing that when the God of justice comes... He will judge all sin, and there will be a perfect justice. You know, there's a same sense that rides in the New Testament, because here they're looking forward to that first coming, and I think it even rides together, his first and second, that full work of Christ, and he accomplishes in his first, and and it's consummated in his second, and they see them apart. Now, we have experienced the first coming, and we still stand in this already and not yet, and there's this same sense of there, of where is justice? Where do we see his hand? In 2 Peter 3, verse 4, it says this. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Right? It's the same heart, that same sense of unbelief that can arise, the same temptation. He said, this is after Christ has come. One, our redemption, is sitting at the right hand of the Father, Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all these things, as continue as they were from the beginning, it's the same old, same old. The wicked prosper, and we still suffer. Hebrews 2, verse 8 puts it this way. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. He's talking about the ascension of Christ. After he rose from the dead, he ascended, and he put all things in subjection to him. There is nothing Nothing that is outside of the control of the reigning Christ. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. This is the already reigning, but not yet in full subjection. That day is coming. But in between is this tension of where, when, How long, O Lord, how long? He is already king, but the kingdom has not fully come. But the New Testament points us ahead, even as the 
prophet points Israel ahead to see that the day is coming when every tear will be wiped away, when all things will be made new, and that justice will be complete. The day of a final salvation and justice. When both love and justice are fulfilled. But we live here in the promise. The promise that he will purify and he will judge. That one day I will be wiped from my sin, which I still struggle with. Right, that day of purifying, the final purifying, when we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And a final justice when things like happened at the covenant school or other ways that we see God's people in this world suffer or share the same sufferings of the world, but we look ahead and say there will be a day when that will end. When justice will be perfect and we will be perfect. But it's not yet. And that is a hard place to live. Until that day, we live by faith and not by sight. As as Christians, we're not exempt. We need the power of the resurrection that's already happened to empower us in patience, in endurance, to endure what we must. You remember Colossians chapter 1, verse 11. I always was struck as he prays all these things for the Colossian believers. And he when he gets to this point, and it builds up, if you didn't read the end of this sentence, so if you don't remember it, he says this, may you be strengthened, it's a word for power, right? May you be made strong with all power according to his glorious might, right? Three power words. May you be strengthened, empowered with all power according to his glorious divine might. And what do you think he's praying for? He says, so that. Right? What do you think he's praying for? Like, there are people who go, oh, so that you could raise the dead, right? So that you could speak in tongues, like so that you can do marvelous, miraculous things, right? You would expect, what do we need all this power for, Lord? That he's praying for his church. Strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for endurance, and patience with joy. Colossians 1, verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Why? Because we live in the not yet. And you're going to live there until he comes again. And the greatest thing we need all this power for is to not lose faith. To live by faith and not by sight. To wait for justice. To wait for healing. To wait for all things to be made new and right. And to be a faithful people in the middle of it. I'm going to read in closing a lengthy portion of Psalm 73. I debated. It's long. And some of you may not go home and read it. So I'm going to read a lot of it to you. So I read to you that first part where he's basically saying, I almost stumbled. I almost fell. When I saw how the wicked prosper, how they're at ease and how they, you know, have everything. You know, maybe I kept myself innocent. Maybe I washed my hands in innocence, you know, for no reason. Maybe I wasted my time. But even the psalmist gets there. Psalm 73, starting in verse 16, he says, And so when I thought how to understand this, right, it seemed wearisome task until, 
right? I couldn't figure it out. It weighed on me. I, I, was, it, I was not at peace, he says, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Till I came under the hearing of the word of God and his truth and his promises. And when I came into the sanctuary, then I discerned their end. I could see what? I could see the present. No, he'll, he's going to curse them tomorrow and you'll get rich. You know, he's going to, you'll get better and you'll not. He, he doesn't see this. What does he see? He sees their end. The day is coming, the Lord says. Right? And truly you set them Right? The wicked on slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. Their day is coming. How? They are destroyed in a moment. They're swept away utterly by terrors. Their end is not good. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself on that day, when you do come, when judgment is effected, when all of those things are put right, when you arouse yourself, O oh Lord, you will despise them like phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked at my heart, when I wrestled with these things, I was a brutish, ignorant beast. I was like a beast before you. This is, you know, when I envied the wicked and wondered whether it was... I should follow you and even seek to be your person and seek righteousness. I was like a brute beast. How ignorant to envy the world and doubt God. Nevertheless, oh Lord, in your grace, I am continually with you. You hold me by my hand as I walk through this valley of the shadow of death. You guide me by your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me. I see my end. Afterward, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing now. When I get this eternal perspective, there is nothing on earth that I desire. I don't need all of that. I don't need anything else. There's nothing I need but this promise that is made true and sure in Christ. My flesh and my heart, they may fail, and they will, but God is the strength of my heart. He is my Portion, not just for this hour, but forever. Behold, those who are far from you, they will perish. I see their end. You will put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made you, O Lord God, my refuge. And I will tell of your works. He is saying we must live in the light of eternity. There is a final purifying. There is a final judgment. And that day is coming. And in the meantime, there's nothing on earth that I desire but you. And you are the strength of my heart. You are my portion forever. Let me never doubt. Events of this week remind us things are not okay. We live in the not yet. It can feel like Good Friday. It can feel like crucifixion. But Easter is coming. Christ has come. And my friends, Christ will come again. Pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We thank you for the messenger of the covenant who is the covenant keeper, who has kept covenant for us and bore the penalty of our failure for our sin. That on that day, we can look forward to your coming. We can long for your coming because we stand righteous in Christ. But in the meantime, Father, while we await that day, would you strengthen us 
with all power according to your glorious might so that we might endure with patience and joy. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.